Yes, it's been a great joy to be with uh, David and the Church of St. Peter's Dundee. Uh, I think everything has been wonderful except his uh, assurances about the weather. I'm struggling with my faith on that matter and have some doubts. But if it's true that the sun always shines here as it did yesterday and today, I think I shall have to retire here, though that's perhaps something in the past. We've had a wonderful weekend, the people of St. Peter's Dundee. We've been away together. And this is, in a sense for us, a conclusion of that weekend, so that you come in at the end of me trying to explain this wonderful passage in 1 Peter. But I hope, although you haven't been in at the beginning, you will enjoy it just as much. Just occasionally you hear, don't you, some fortunate person with a metal detector who goes wandering across a field and suddenly discovers hidden treasure. Well, in a sense, what we've been trying to do at this weekend is to find the hidden treasure in the Word of God. And I want you, in a sense, to search and hear that word rather than my words, because my words will honestly be inadequate to explain all the wonders of what we've seen this weekend and what I hope we're going to see this evening tonight together. Will you turn, therefore, to um, 1 Peter? I I haven't got eyes in the back of my head, but I think the two verses I want are up there already. No, they're not. (laughs) Could someone please do something about that? Sooner or later they'll come, and then you'll be able to catch up with me. Now, the letter, as I say, that we're going to look at is 1 Peter, and the theme we're going to look at is the Church of God. And if anybody should know something about the Church of God, it is surely the Apostle Peter. He and James were the leaders of the very first Church of Jesus Christ that ever existed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where our Lord lived, died, and rose again. He lived, of course, elsewhere, but he died and rose again at Jerusalem. It was the place where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Christians, giving the dynamite to go into all the world. So if anybody knew what a church ought to be like, it is surely the Apostle Peter. He is an expert on the subject. And uh, we've been learning about it from 1 Peter. And if you have your Bible open, and that obviously be a great help to me. Can you hear me, by the way, at the back? You can, that's great. No point in my talking if you can't hear me. Uh, I'm going to just go through the sections that we've looked at. We won't be able to, uh, to study them, of course. But we start at chapter 1 and verse 22. And that little section from verse 22, over the chapter division, which is a false one really, to chapter 2, verse 3, describes the local church as the family of God. That's a very attractive title. That's what a local church ought to be. That is what the universal church ought to be. It is God's family on earth. Not God's family triumphant in heaven, but the church militant here on earth. So the first section, and we looked at that early in our weekend, is the church as a family of God. Then we looked at verses 4 of chapter 2, if you got that as you're looking at your Bible, down to verse 8, 
And we saw the picture there of the church as a temple or house of God with a priesthood offering sacrifices which had to do with our daily lives. We haven't time to go back on any of that. I know that time is flying away, and so I shall probably uh, talk fairly fast. It's a fault of mine, I gather, and I hope, madam, that you'll be able to manage. Uh, I apologize if I go too fast, but it's wonderful watching you do that. Um, and I, uh, Yes, you watch her and listen to me, all right? <laughs> and then the third section, which, go, which I get to look at now. Oh, yes, good. And, and which is up on, my, on the board, shows the church as the people of God. Now, Peter packed so much into just two verses and a few lines that I can't possibly cover it all tonight. So what I've done is to select and choose two verses. And they're there in verse, or rather two little themes, two vast themes in verse 9. I've decided to talk about, one, what God has done for his people, And secondly, what God's people are to do for God in the world today. So let me pick these words out from the verse 9. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful, marvelous light. So what God has done for his people is to call them out of darkness. And what the people of God have got to do for him is to declare his praises. Is that perfectly clear? seems to me as clear as words can make it. It's very nice to see somebody nodding over there and agreeing with me. You may not agree with me with all I say this evening, but I hope so far you do agree with me. So, he's called us out of darkness, which is evil and error and uh, ignorance, and he's called us into glorious light, the knowledge of God. So away we go. Let's deal, first of all, with God's calling. It is not quite like ours. God's calling is an effectual calling, whereas most of our calling is pretty ineffectual. I think of a great friend of mine called Hugh Sylvester. He had a very large manse, and uh, he once spoke on this, and it went into my rather thick skull, and I've been able to remember it. He said that he would stand at the door. uh, They were going out, for example, for an evening dinner. He would stand at the door of the uh, manse, And he would call back into the house, asking his wife and his daughter to hurry up. Hurry up, we're late. And from the echoes at the back of this enormous manse would come the words, coming, but nothing happened. So he would shout out again, we're nearly late, hurry up. And again, from the far distances would come a voice, yes, we're coming. Now, please, I'm not saying that uh, women are always the slowest. It may be your husband is a slow coach, and you have to wait for him. But the point of that little story is that you can call people, and they may not obey, they may not come. So often you see somebody calling their dog, which is totally out of control, and nothing that they can say can make any difference. Or you see uh, a person with their children who simply don't obey what they say. It's always sometimes rather embarrassing. Or you hear a football crowd braying and calling out for their side to shoot a girl, and they don't. Pretty calling. But when God calls, people come. Of course, it's wonderfully illustrated, isn't it, in the Gospels. 
Don't you love those great stories to show that the Word of God calling upon people is obeyed? He calls men who are fishing. He calls them to be his disciples and to follow him. And they leave everything, their job, their nets, their security, everything. He goes into the synagogue where some priests are looking with enmity. He sees a man with a withered hand, presumably uh, helplessly along his side. And he says to the man, lift up your arm. And he lifts it up. It's impossible to do it. He calls him to do something that is impossible. When God calls us to follow Christ, he's calling us to do something which is humanly impossible. But his call is an effectual calling, and when he calls, we come. I don't have much sympathy with those who say we ought to be able to do all the miracles that Jesus did since the Holy Spirit is with us today. When people say that to me, I think we better hire a boat and go out into the sea into a storm and invite my friend to say, be still, so that the waves will stop. I know anybody who can do that, but the Lord did. He called even nature to be under his control. I was in the Navy for three years doing my national service, and I can tell you that when the wind is up for two days, really rough, and everybody is being seasick, the wind can, I was in the Mediterranean, it can actually suddenly stop in an hour or two. It's a wonderful thing. Suddenly you are at peace and the, the gale stops. But what does not stop is the swell, which is the result of the wind. Any of you who go to sea, any of you who have been fishermen will know this. And actually it's the swell that makes you feel ill, not the wind. So when Jesus says to the wind and the waves, be still, and the wind stops, that could be a coincidence. But if the waves suddenly are flat, what are you to make of that? He calls, and it is so. His word is obeyed. It's an effectual calling. Now, we are very weak, and you know that. Every Christian here knows that. When you try to invite a friend of yours to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to him, You may have a great friend, and you've often talked to them, lent them a book, taken them to a service, urged them to trust in Christ and find this pearl of great price that you have found. Nothing happens. You feel absolutely helpless. You've answered their questions. You've given them all the information they need, and it seems as though you can achieve absolutely nothing. What do you do? Well, I think every Christian is the same all over the world. You fall on your knees and you say, God, I can't do it. I can't convince Bill. I can't convict him of his sinfulness. I can't turn him around to you. Unless you do it, nothing is going to happen. Is that not right? It is only God who can call someone out of darkness into glorious light. That's how the word call or calling is defined in the Bible. There is only one vocation in the Bible. It is the calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To be his disciple at school, college, medical school, in the armed services, at work, or at home. Now, I have to tell you that if you look at your dictionary afterwards or a thesaurus, you'll find that the dictionary doesn't agree with the Bible. If you look up a dictionary or a thesaurus and you look up the word calling, 
you will find the following. Occupation, business, job, career, vocation, uh, doc a vocation as, for example, a doctor, a teacher, or a nurse. In other words, vocation is narrowed down to certain people, although it, it says in the dictionary, uh, business and job could, I suppose, be anything. Now, I hope you'll be interested in this. I was interested when I first discovered it. How actually the word calling, which in the Bible has been called to follow Christ, came to be used and is used today for a vocation to be a doctor or whatever. And to do that, if you've got a Bible, it'll help you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a remarkable chapter. I'm going to be very brief on this, and I'll shout it out for those of you who haven't got a Bible. But I think this is really interesting. It's one of the truths that uh, was discovered or rediscovered at the 16th century Reformation. Let me read chapter 7 and verse 17. Nevertheless, says the Apostle Paul, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which or rather in which God has called him. You see the temptation. When a young man comes to Christ, the temptation is to say, I'm going to... I'm going to cease sitting on my banker's uh, bench or whatever it is, and I want to go and preach the gospel. And Paul says, no. You're to retain, you're to remain in the place in which God called you. Your calling, in other words, is to be a Christian in the place where first you were converted, came to trust in Christ, came to know the, the word of God. Then let me read from verse 21. Again, I hope many of you got your Bibles. Well, this is extraordinary teaching. When Remember, there was slavery in his day. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord, that is, became a Christian, is the Lord's free man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price and so on. So the word calling came to be uh, applied to people's work, though actually it applies to their work only if they have come to know our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a tremendous revelation to the people of the day. It, it, it meant, for example, that a mother caring for her sick child one night was just as much called to that as the nun in her nunnery prostrate upon the, uh, upon the floor, offering praise to God. The one was not superior to the other. Both were obeying their calling, the one to be a nun, mother, the other to be a nun. That was a revolution, revelation and a rever revolution. And we still haven't got it right. I was at Marble Arch in London, and I saw a church, and I thought I'd pop in and see it, what it was like inside. It was a very high Anglo-Catholic church, and there were some uh, books that I saw uh, just in a little, anchor, uh, a little alcove. I picked them up and it said, these prayer books are for the religious. <laughs> That's what the Reformation destroyed. 
What the Reformation told us is that there are no people, no group of people who are more religious than anyone else in the Church of Jesus Christ. We're all equal. We're all brothers and sisters. So the person who cleaned that church, if they were a converted Christian, was just as on the same level of calling as the minister himself. So the whole local Christian community, all the members of a local church, share in God's calling. All together have a sacred vocation. Whether you're a fisherman, a farmer, a pharmacist, or a fiancé, whether you're a policeman, a professor, a pupil, or a pastry cook, it doesn't matter a bit. As long as you've been called out of darkness into marvelous light, you have a vocation. The vocation to be a Christian in the world where God has planted you. And what a difference that makes. What a change. There is no greater blessing in the Christian life. There is no blessing after conversion that is as great as being brought out of darkness into glorious light. A verse that has always, uh, always I've loved, I'll read it out loud, I won't ask you to turn to it. It's Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13. Yes, you clever Bible student up there in the gallery, I guess you've got that before I have. Listen to what it means to be delivered out of darkness into glorious light. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's a wonderful last sentence, isn't it? He has brought us out of the, kingdom, uh, out of the dominion of darkness when we are ruled by, ruled by error and sin and evil into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That's what God has done for us if we are Christian people. You might well pinch yourself tonight if you're a Christian and say, isn't that amazing what God has done for me? In his great grace, he's brought you out of darkness, out of ignorance, for most of our fellow countrymen are quite ignorant of these things, from the top of our country down to the bottom. Our government is largely ignorant of these things. Today, ignorance stalks the land, doesn't it? People are in darkness. That's why evil is coming upon us. Error is always followed by evil. The young people here, that is the world you're going to face. And the only answer we Christians have is one by one. One by one, coming out of darkness into glorious light. If that is what God has done for his people, what are God's people to do for him? Well, there is a great responsibility, an urgent priority, a major assignment, and there it is on the board up there, and I'll read it. You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That's the... Number one priority of the Church of God in its local shape, and all the people together should be working to that end. We considered during the weekend this very difficult business of translating from the Greek into English. Here's the sentence, when he talks about declaring, he means telling and proclaiming. Then he says, declaring his praises, his virtues, his excellences. Most of the Bibles translated today, say something like that. But actually, we've got to go further 
and there are one or two modern translations who go that little bit further. For declaring his praises means declaring the mighty works of God. That is because in the first century, in the days in which Peter was writing, to declare the excellences or praises of a God was to recount what he was supposed to have done. Now, if that seems strange to you, actually we use this language all the time. Where we talk about singing someone's praises. And that normally means not singing their praises as to what they are, but as to what they've done. So, I want to sing the praises of Bill, who passed his driving test at the eighth time of asking, and I still don't feel safe driving. So, that's all wrong. Sorry, that, that was quite wrong. Correct. Start again. I want to sing the praises of Bill, who passed his driving test for the first time and drove from Dundee to Aberdeen without hitting anything. In other words, I want to sing the praises of a young man who's starting to drive well. That's what it means to sing praises. Or I sing the praises of his mum, and I say her apple crumble is out of this world. Do you see, we sing the praises of someone when we recount what they have done and hold it up for admiration. Don't you sing people's praises like that? And that's what it means here. When this uh, little sentence says we're to declare the praises of him, it means we're to declare his mighty works. And I can put this to the test very easily. How did Peter himself declare the praises of God? Well, as a matter of fact, we know. And uh, I'd ask you, if you will, to turn to Acts 2, if you have your Bible, and I will comment on the very first sermon that was ever preached Peter on the day of Pentecost. And you will see that he doesn't talk in abstract terms at all. He doesn't just talk about God being love, he talks about a God who so loved the world that he gave. Now, the singing the praises means singing the praises of what someone has actually done because of what they are. So, very quickly, let's look at Acts chapter 2. Verse 22. Miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. You see, it's all about God. It's not about him. He's not scolding his listeners and saying, this is what you should do and this is what you should believe in the first place. He's holding up to them the praises of God who raised Christ from the dead. Look again at verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. Look again at verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, if you came to this service this evening and you are not a born-again Christian... God has made this Jesus, whom you so carelessly ignore, he has made him both Lord and Christ. You better take some account of that. You see what he goes on to say, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. I wish we were more cut to the heart. And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded, save yourselves from this generation. He didn't mean that we could redeem ourselves, but we're all surrounded by people who want to hold us back, aren't we? And to become a Christian, we have to save ourselves from all our acquaintances who who mock it, who uh, speak against it, who are careless about the things of God. We have to run for our lives sometimes, don't we, when we come to Christ. But I want you to see that what he's doing in this wonderful Pentecostal sermon is to talk about God and to sing his praises and to tell you what God has done, which is unique in the history of the world, raising Christ from the dead that he might be our savior. Now, before I step down from my perch, there's time for one more sermon from the Apostle Peter. It's very short, and it's quite remarkable. And all of you who've got Bibles, please turn to Acts 10, 42 and 43. And if those miracle workers at the back can manage to put Acts 10, 42 and 43 on the, then I'll give you a prize. I haven't got one with me, but we'll find one somewhere. Acts 4, chapter 10, verse 42 and 43. And if you've been asleep in the last 10 minutes, will you please wake up now? Because this is a remarkable sermon in miniature, condensed into two verses. And you'll never hear a sermon better than this that goes to the very heart of the matter and sings the praises of God. I sometimes ask young ministers if this is what they are proclaiming, and I sometimes ask myself, is this what I'm proclaiming? Well, I'm going to read it. Oh, isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Well, we go on. That's only verse 42. We want verse 43 as well, don't we? So, so. Now, can we have them both at once? No praise unless we can have them both at once. Oh, well, then, no, no prize, but um, no, no, no. we'll go back to verse 42 then. Back to verse 42. Thank you. Now, if you've got your Bible, look at verse 42. This is the message of the New Testament apostles. So it is the message of the New Testament. He called upon us, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that is Jesus, is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. That is awesome, isn't it? That all who have ever lived will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as their judge. We actually ought to rejoice at that because what it means is that at the end of time, justice is going to be done. Nothing that is evil will have a say on on that last day. So a wonderful thought, isn't it? That's the message of the New Testament, the coming of of the Lord in judgment. Then in verse uh, 43, we have the message of the Old Testament. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. Glorious words. So the Old Testament message foretells the coming of the Lord in salvation. Get that clear? The New Testament message foretells the coming of the Lord in judgment. The Old Testament message foretells the coming of the Lord in salvation. So much for those ignorant people who say the Old Testament 
is an ogre and a monster. Peter says, and he knew the Old Testament better than any of us, that the Old Testament is full of promises of a saviour. Will you notice how universal it is? Verse 42, please, up on the board. He is the one whom God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. That means everybody who's ever lived and everybody who will ever live, and it means all of us here. Will you notice in verse 43, please, up on the board, that all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes has forgiveness of sins. Isn't that wonderful? Nobody too sinful, nobody too silly, Nobody too far off. Universal. But above all, I want you to notice how when Peter preached, it was full of Christ. Just listen to me. Don't worry about the Bible anymore uh, that you've got in your hands. Just listen to me. And you've got to worry. Sorry, that was wrong, wasn't it? <laughs> That's my age. When you get as too old as me, you get very stupid. Now listen to me reading verse 42 and 43 and see if you can count the number of times that Jesus Christ is mentioned. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Jesus, that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins, obviously from God, through Jesus' name. Isn't that remarkable? In a short summary, what Peter tells us is that the proclamation is all about Jesus. Right, let's summarize what we've learned tonight. What God in great mercy has done for his people is to save and rescue them from judgment. We must say that from time to time, mustn't we? Because... The thought of being in darkness forever and ever and ever is a frightening thought, isn't it? But that's what you will be if you don't turn to Christ. You'll be in darkness and ignorance forever. People come up to me once or twice and say, Mr. Lucas, you're trying to threaten me. And I say, well, no, as a matter of fact, it's the Lord Jesus who spends his time warning us with tears in his eyes. You'll find that if you read the Gospels. And then I say, well, I wish I could frighten you. Trouble is, you won't listen to me. And I do wish I could frighten people to wake up before it's too late. What has God in great mercy done for his people? He has rescued them from darkness and brought them to his glorious light and knowledge of himself and the forgiveness of sins. What are his people to do for him? Well, to proclaim that great salvation, of course. You got that up there? That's your job if you're in a local church, to proclaim his salvation. Well, two minutes, we've got to apply that. I don't know why preachers are told they've got to do all the application. You're just as intelligent as I am. You must apply that to yourself and to your local church. But let me have a couple of goes. I would say that the local church should be looking to raise up those who can preach and tell this truth in their own church and in other churches that are needed. Isn't that right? And I notice in 1 Peter 4, and there isn't time now to read it, that if people are to do that, they must be gifted in doing it. So one application is that every local church should be looking for people who are able to tell this news 
adequately, intelligently, enjoyably, uh, powerfully. What is the point of having people telling the news who can't do it? That job does not belong to all Christians. It belongs to those whom God has gifted to do it. Then secondly, I would say that we all have a responsibility not to climb into a pulpit, but to say something about the Lord Jesus to our friends and neighbors. We are not all VJs. VJ is an Indian Christian in the congregation of St. Helens to which I used to belong, which I do still belong in part. VJ was wonderfully brought to a knowledge of Christ some 30 years ago, and he is entirely without self-consciousness. He's not shy like most of us. I don't know how many times I've heard Vijay 10 yards away saying to somebody, did you know that I was a Hindu? And he's never snubbed. You know, if I went up to somebody and said, did you know that I was once a pagan? Well, I don't because I'm so shy. I don't want to be rebuffed. But Vijay is unsnubbable. And for 30 years, because he's got such a lovely, joyful faith, he tells people how God brought him out of the darkness of Hinduism into the light of Christ. Another application, I suppose, is that we should use all the modern means of communication. God has wonderfully, in the last few years, brought about a way in which we can communicate with the whole world. Of course, the devil will use that, and does so. But ought we not to do the same? Oughtn't the church to have its website? Oughtn't it to record its messages so that they go everywhere? A final word. Jesus once said to a woman who was devoted to him and poured oil on his feet, he said, she has done what she could. And, you know, dear friends, I don't really think God asks any more. In proclaiming the glorious praises of God, I don't think he expects you or me to do more than we're able to do. Wouldn't it be lovely if at the last day, the Lord Jesus says to you, well done, faithful servant, you did what you could. Maybe very little, maybe very much. Ronald Wilcox, one of my elders, was a merchant in Jute. He was often in Dundee. God blessed his business. He was a wealthy man, and he put his money in the support of training young ministers to preach the gospel. He actually called it by the name which it has today, the Proclamation Trust. I don't think Ronnie could preach. He never attempted to do so, but he did what he could, and the result is that pastors all over the world get the help that they need from that trust, which all goes back to one man who did what he could. Let's pray. What about you? Are you doing what you can? Our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, we stand in awe before you. We would tremble to come before you, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, But through him, we come boldly to your throne of grace tonight. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for one another. We thank you for the churches represented here. We thank you for their ministers and their sacrificial work. 
But we also thank you that you have ordained that the work is to be done by all Christians and not just by the ministers, that we're all in it together and that we all have a gift, that we all have an opportunity and that we can all do what we can. And gracious God and Savior, give us the courage, the joy, the desire, the ability to do what we can for Christ. We ask it for his dear name's sake. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.